audio sermons from Peachtree Christian Church. The scripture this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 62, verses 6 through 12. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my deliverance and my honor, my mighty rock, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion, and the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no confidence in extortion, and set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and steadfast love belongs to you, O Lord, for you repay to all according to their work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. My friends, it's a delight to be with you in worship on this Lord's Day. Thank you for minding our progress. Yes, we are changing all the light bulbs in the sanctuary. Some are just being changed, but many are being fixed. And yes, next Sunday we will be on that side of the sanctuary for worship. This is part of uh, just the ongoing effort to not only keep this as a thriving ministry, but to preserve this historic facility here at the corner of Peachtree and Spring for the next 100 years. So this is a product of the Heritage Fund at work. If you want to continue to give to the ongoing preservation of the church, ask me or see someone in a robe. We'll tell you how you can give to that aspect of what we're doing at the church. And of course, we, we, we only do that because this is a vibrant, life-giving uh, congregation. So please continue to support that as well. I know that moving places in a sanctuary for churchgoers can often be disconcerting. So I'm concerned that many of you are probably in... A, a separate headspace. So why don't you do the thing that I ask you to do every week is stop and breathe. But I want you, as you close your eyes for a moment, to feel grounded where you're sitting, feel the pew, feel your feet on the floor, and know that ultimately beyond all ethereal space, you are rooted within eternity, within God's blessing. Close your eyes and just feel rooted in God. To prepare your mind, take a few breaths. Cleansing breaths in and cleansing breaths out. You will breathe anyway, but be aware of your breath. And now, my friends, take a breath in and breathe in the breath of God. Lord, we are gathered here together as a people who aim to be a community of trust who place our trust in you for our life and for our flourishing. God, we are committed to being a people who do not seek to hold on to certainty or hold on to comfort by reaching out and grabbing it and taking it and securing for ourselves things that give us security of mind. We, we want to be the kind of people that reach out to you and to put our faith and trust in you, that you will hold us that you will make us the people of faith that we need to be. God, 
whether anyone else knows it or not. You and I know that without you, I can do nothing. So we pray that these words prepared be inspired by your Spirit and that your Spirit fall upon this place. And everywhere my voice may be heard, that these words would be effective and helpful. It is in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, your Son, that we pray and God's people together say, Amen. There was a man who was in the armed services. He was on the second of several deployments in the Mideast. It's that war that we've been fighting for a long time that isn't like the typical wars of our history. There is not one battlefield or, or, or even a known objective at all times. Rather, there's battles and skirmishes and, and fighting that happens here, there, and everywhere, and sometimes unexpectedly. He had a wife at home who loved him and a boy. He was his son's hero. And as he was gone on this deployment, his son wanted nothing more than for his daddy to be home. His son and his wife alike, they couldn't wait for that, that phone call they were able to receive from dad every now and again where they could see his face on the computer screen and they could, they could talk and, and share what was going on in school. And, and the dad didn't talk about war or difficulty. He just talked about the guys, the fellows in the unit. One day... His unit was doing some sort of mission, some sort of job, and gunfire broke out, and they were pinned down unexpectedly. His wife and son knew nothing of it stateside, but they knew something was up when they had the scheduled time that they normally talked to dad, and he wasn't available. Time went on without them knowing what was going on with him, with dad. And over time, his wife back home, she got worried, as you would get worried, wondering, imagining. And the stories that we create for ourselves are often even worse than real life. So she carried it silently. She didn't want her son, her little boy, she didn't want him terrified about his father. But no matter how much she suppressed the feelings, somehow the boy picked up on it. Because psychically, you can't hide everything. Something about the stress was just there presently surrounding her body. And the boy did what little boys do. He internalized it. Well, one night, she was called to the school for a curriculum night. You, you know what curriculum nights are. Those are the invitations that parents receive to go to the children's school to meet the teacher, to hear about the curriculum, to find out what they're going to do. Sometimes when they're young enough, you sit at their desk and you see their little layout and how they've been managing their day. And the mom, she sat there. Her son was at a babysitter's and she sat there at his desk and she just couldn't think much about school because she was thinking about her husband. The teacher invited all the parents over to this great wall of art, you know, just to, just to see what their kids have been up to. And, and the mom, she could tell, she didn't have to be told or read any little signatures. She knew right off the bat, which pictures were her son's because a mama knows the art of her child. And she started noticing them. There was a lot of his art up on the wall, more than most other kids. And she noticed something similar about each piece that her son had done. And each piece in the center of the picture was always daddy. Daddy coming home to the family. Daddy being present with the family. Daddy playing ball with the son. Daddy in every single picture. And in that moment, she couldn't hold the emotion back anymore. Her lip quivered and the moisture in her eye welled up. And at that very moment before the tear fell down her cheek, a teacher, the teacher who knew what was going on, stood next to her 
and put on her hand on her back as a moment of solace. Sometimes it's the deepest longings of our heart that become the obsessions of our art. I don't know if you do art anymore, if you draw or you paint or you write songs or poetry, or maybe you're just a raconteur and you like to tell stories, but those deep burning desires in our heart often bubble up and they find their expression in us creatively somewhere. The things that we are obsessed about and thoughtful about will come out in our speech and in our writing and in our drawing. The little boy's desire was for daddy. That's why we have songs about love and home and our aspirations. Today, we've read from a psalm, and psalms are Hebrew poetry, but they're also songs. So uh, Paul Vickers read to us the words of a songwriter this morning. And, and for me, this psalm follows uh, a tradition of some other psalms that I can pinpoint uh, a couple common themes. There's this language of refuge and strength and protection. Now, if you'll forgive me, my family loves J.R.R. Tolkien in his little middle earth world. You know, when I was in third grade, I read The Hobbit and the story stuck with me. My, my wife's read all the books. My brother's read all the books. My brother annoys us by quizzes about who begat who in the Lord of the Rings world. Our kids have watched the movies. You know, we, we like those stories. They, they're part of our cultural little milieu as a family. And so when I come to the Psalms like this, I, I call them Helm's Deep Psalms. So if you'll forgive me, the nerdiness, but in Tolkien's story, Helm's Deep is this, is this place where there, there's the city of men are protected up against the mountains with this great fortress around them. It's all built in, into the hewn rock, and it's just a, a sight to behold. There are Psalms like that that use militaristic metaphors that talk about God being such a fortress, such a refuge, and, and, and God shields the people of God under the wings of God. There's this very embattled language in a lot of these Psalms. That's why psalmists are obsessed with the heights. I'm up on the strong tower of the Lord because anyone in military knows that when you have the high ground, you got the better ground. So does the psalmist. And the psalmist is employing all that language right here. Ultimately, the purpose, though, that the psalmist is talking about is trust in God. All that fortress and refuge language is about the psalmist's own desire or own trust in God. But if you notice, the psalmist, our songwriter, writes about this trust over and over and over again. Why? Why does the songwriter obsessively talk about trusting God in this song? Is it because the songwriter is just naturally gifted at trust? Part of their temperament profile is that they are a trusting person? Or is it because they have worked really hard at becoming a trustworthy and trusting person? All the spiritual disciplines they learned in church and the pattern example of the holy ones in their family, their mom and dad, they taught them lessons that made them grow into trust and they worked hard for every bit of trust that they've got. And because they've worked so hard, maybe they can boast about it, write songs about it. Is that how songwriters work? Or is it the case that the psalmist's deepest longing the deepest desire of their heart, the deepest need within their belly is trust. They are hemmed in, friends. They've got problems. They are embattled people, whoever's writing these psalms. 
Here they are struggling, and in the midst of the struggle of their life, they want nothing more than the thing that is hardest for them to assent to, the thing that is so challenging to assent to in difficulty. They want the trust that they so desperately need, and so maybe that is why he's writing about it over and over and over. When I was in the midst of my great liver ordeal, I was obsessed not just with survival, I didn't want to just survive. I wanted to thrive. My prayers use that word thrive and flourish all the time. All the time. And this past week, I was reaching out to the pension foundation of the church to, to find out some of my tax records. Because it's that season. <laughs> Yay! But you know what? I'm like a lot of you. I completely forgot my password and my login. By the way, after church, do not tell me all the ways that I can keep my passwords straight. I know them all. I'm just not going to do them. Confessions. True confessions of a preacher. So I call the organization and I tell them, oh man, I misplaced my password and blah, 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 blah. And so I go through all the security questions and then they tell me what my password was. Do you, do you want to hear it? I will thrive 77. In fact, it made me laugh. You want to know why? Because every password is I will thrive 77. I mean, it's not now. <laughs> Colleen, uh, tell me to change that today. I was so obsessed with, with thriving that it, it found its way everywhere. In fact, there's a journal that I was using to, to work the, on the sermon this week, and it's got full of, just full of notes and, and pages. And you know how many times thrive is written in here? If I kept all the minutes from our executive committee meetings, you would find cartoons of me writing the word thrive over and over and over. What's the point? It's the deepest concern of my heart at a time, and it finds its way to be expressed. The psalmist is looking for trust because the psalmist needs it in a way like you can't imagine. The psalmist wants to be a trusting person, and I would suggest to you that that is a profound existential thing, to be a person of trust. It's not a simple thing. I, I know the word trust is simple and it's used by banks and it's everywhere, but, but to be it is deep. It's existential. Because trust is at least a willful blindness for the periphery. So focused are you on a single point of hope. Trust is a willful blindness to the periphery. So focused are you on a single point of hope. Two weeks ago, I had a liver biopsy to check in to see how the numbers match up to the actual liver itself. I'll confess, I wasn't thrilled about getting a biopsy. It wasn't like my idea day, the ideal day, right? But I was confident, confident because of the doctors. I be learned to be a person of trust in doctors after having been a person of distrust. They have proven themselves to me. But I got to tell you, when I was laying in the room about to get the thing done, the doctor asked me if I wanted to know how they were going to go about procuring said sample. Not at all. I didn't want any idea how big the needle was. And I wasn't inspecting whether they were going to go in through this part or that part. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to say to the doctor, are you sure you want to go in there? Do you want to go down a rib? I, I just, you know what I did? I ignored all that. And I focused on the doctor and just talked to the doctor because I was trusting the doctor. Now, I even tried to put out of my mind that little noise in the background that goes beep, 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 
beep. Because, you know, if I start thinking about that beep, beep, beep so much, and I start wondering about it, I wonder, why is the beep beeping? Is it a good thing that it's beeping, or is it a bad thing that it's beeping? I mean, when I'm talking like this, is the, beep, the beeping seems to go going faster. Is it going faster because my voice is going faster? Why is it going faster? I can get that way in the doctor's office. And so to be a person of trust meant to ignore all of it, to blind myself to it, just to focus on the hope. And I sat there looking him in the eyes going, you got me, don't you? Thank you. Trust is deep. The psalmist trust, his desire for trust is quite necessary in his world too, because he's telling us in this song, his songwriting expresses that there are enemies at the gate. There are enemies everywhere around. But he doesn't say who. He doesn't say what the enemy is. We're left either with a lot of historical investigation or our imaginations. And I, I read a teacher this week who said, when Psalms like this talk about an enemy but don't tell us who, then we are invited as a contemporary church to fill in the blank. So I began to ask the question, what is the great enemy of today's church? What is the great enemy of Christians today and their faith? What stands in the way? I'm sure we could insert a lot of different things that are menaces to the life of faith, whether it's consumerism and materialism or whatever. But to me, when I thought about it this week and I prayed about it, I, I learned that I think the greatest trouble, the greatest enemy you and I have is certainty. Certainty. The desire to be certain, the attitude that we are certain, the rigidity of certainness. And it's because we live in an age of suspicion. No, we, we're not a skeptical age. People misunderstand the words. Skepticism is a disbelief in stated facts or stated opinions. Since Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche, and Feuerbach wrote, we have been living in the milieu of suspicion. And suspicion is different than skepticism because it's not so much about facts and figures and opinions and convictions. Suspicion is about the inter inner self and intentions. People who are suspicious aren't just arguing facts, but they are suspicious of what your motivations are. Why are you a Christian? What service, what, says it, what ends does it serve you? What power play is there in being a Christian? This is how suspicion works, and it's gotten worse with each generation that's gone on. The idea today is that we are more than ever suspicious of authority. We are more suspicious of of truth claims in the media. We are more suspicious of institutions. This isn't a good word for the church, which is I got an authority and a tradition and institution. Three strikes right there in a world of suspicion. And because we live in that world, we do feel like things are upside down and not strong in terms of a foundation. Because of that, we want certainty more than ever. Just a little something to claim for our own, but it has nefarious ways of working out in our world. I was thinking this past week about multi-level marketing schemes. I know a lot of folks have done multi-level marketing schemes and they begin to promote certain products that have stated benefits for our life. Certain essential oils or certain pills, certain things that, that do things that sound strange to me, like um, the, the, the vibration 
the molecular vibration of this particular pill aligns with the molecular vibration of your body such that if you take this, it will prohibit the molecular vibrations that lead to cancer. Now, if you think I'm talking silly, I'm telling you straight up stuff that's out there. It's written as sort of a pseudoscience. And I started asking the question, why are people who are otherwise educated, why are people so antagonistic to the science? You know what really occurred to me? is that we're just suspicious of people who make truth claims. We're suspicious of the government. We're suspicious of, uh, of FDA. We're suspicious of all these things, maybe for some good reasons, maybe for some bad reasons, but we're suspicious. And, and, and ultimately, here's the real rub. What would you rather be told, church? You're facing down a cancer diagnosis for a loved one. What would you rather be told? That if you just did enough cleanses and flushes and took the right supplements, your cancer can be cured or would you rather be told the truth? I don't think we're ever going to fix cancer. Now, our treatments for cancer may get better and better and better and better and better and better until the point where cancer is not the thing that kills us. But like the common cold, it doesn't look like, at least the evidence, doesn't look like we're going to fix it. So would you rather be told that life is full of tragedy and difficulty and we may or may not be able to face cancer or that if you just take the right cocktail, things will be better for you and your loved ones? think I know the answer. And we get certain about it so we can stand on something to feel good about something. Well, certainty has its way of rearing up also with political tribalism. We tell ourselves this story. We tell ourselves there's only one way to solve this problem socially in the world. There certainly couldn't be another way. No, no, no. It's, it's, it, but it's our way. It's the way we understand things to be. And by the way, the, the other point of view is evil. <laughs> Godless liberals, hateful conservatives, You've heard it all before. It's not new. This is what we think. This is how we think. We want to be certain about where we're standing, and we want to be certain that we are on the side of goodness and truth. It plays out religiously in fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, to me, isn't very fun. At its historic origin, fundamentalism is supposed to be about certain fundamentals we believe. I'm down with that. But what has it become? It's become, it's taken faith and made faith drunk with the idea of certainty such that it's become an ideology. And ideologies are dangerous. They're unargued for thoughts. And when you have an ideology, you're not growing in knowledge. You're not deepening yourself. You're stuck as you got. It's not just religious folks who get fundamentalist. There's all kinds of atheist fundamentalisms out there too. This is the truth. This is the way it is. Black and white. No difference. No question. And when this world is like this, we have the desire for a certainty such that it leads us to a war-at-all-cost attitude and ethics. It doesn't matter what we do or what we say about people, what lies we spread, what, 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 what racisms we use. It doesn't matter what coded language. It doesn't matter what we do as long as we and our side win. Because I'm certain that our point of view is the right one, and I'm certain that our point of view is the holy one, and I'm certain they are evil. But my friends, this isn't the pattern of the world. This is not how actually the world works. Sometimes your diagnosis cannot and will not be cured, and politically there has to be more than one answer to serve the total good. And fundamentalism, well, it tries to possess truth, but you can't possess truth. You can't own truth. You don't have a market on truth. Truth may own you, but you cannot own truth because the truth is of God and you don't own God. 
God may own you. And by the way, it is a fundamentally non-Christian impulse to stop learning. It is not a Christian impulse to have it all figured out. Christianity is open. And winning at all costs, don't even get me started. That doesn't sound like Jesus. That sounds like Machiavelli. Considering this, the psalmist's song of trust breaks out of a parochial, ethical set of niceties. It becomes something deeply compelling. In fact, it, it, its implications go all the way down at the most existential of our levels. Searching for certainty in a field of trust is as foolhardy as a snipe hunt. I was a tenderfoot in Boy Scouts, and we went camping once, and they told us about this bird called the snipe, and if we were so lucky, we'd find one. We went prepared, us boys. I watched Indiana Jones movies growing up, so I took all the supplies needed. I took a rope. Why'd you need a rope? I grew up in the 80s. You needed a rope. Walkie-talkies, ropes, pocket knife, and then they take, said, bring a jewel grocery store. That was a grocery store from back home. Bring a jewel shopping bag, a paper bag. So we went to go look for these snipe, and it took about five minutes to find out, to hear all the leaders of the Boy Scout troop and all the older boys laughing at a fire. And I'm, we thought to ourselves, well, hold on a second. They told us we could come out here and catch this like, totally amazing bird like that people don't talk about because it's so hard to find. So amazing. This is, this is like, going like, to be, be a moment. <laughs> We're going to catch this bird. Like, this is a real thing. Like, this, is, this is the reason you should come. You have an opportunity your parents don't have to catch this bird called a snipe. I sat there thinking to myself, wait, you lied to me to get me to come camping? All you had to do is ask me to come camping because that sells me already. But now you're telling me, like, that's not just a joke, but there is no really cool bird out there that's going to change my life? Well, it might be ridiculous, friends, but that's how I feel about searching for certainty in this world is. Because we live in a world of faith. There isn't the certainty to have that we want. The psalmist is a songwriter, and it reminds me that some songs challenge our worldviews. Everlast was a hip-hop guy, became sort of a country guy, and he wrote a song called um, What It's Like. And he asked the listener to get, put themselves in the point of view of disenfranchised people. He even took them right to an abortion clinic to make you think about what another person's story would be like. Woody Guthrie wrote, This land is your land, this land is my land, in the 1940s. It's now a patriotic song, but in 1945 he added verses that we do not like to sing in our country, but they're verses that are very communist. They're about uh, uh, the private land and being against privacy land. But think about it. This land is your land, this land is my land. It's a pretty communist song. It's challenging the status quo. Marvin Gaye wrote, Mercy, Mercy Me, which we often just think Marvin Gaye, it's a love song, but the second line of the song, the second title is called The Ecology. It is a love song about the death of our world, naturally speaking. It's a challenging song. Or you can just turn in your hymnal right out to number 722 and read the lyrics to This Is My Song to the tune Finlandia. We sing it every 4th of July weekend. It's my favorite. Because it's patriotic about our land and our skies, but it's patriotic about every nation's land and skies. And it says that God smiles on all of it. It is a subversive song. This morning's song, our psalmist has written for us, in light of our enemy, certainty. It reminds us the truth of our life of faith, and that is that we are called to perpetually ignore and be blinded to the periphery in light of our hope. 
It's a journey of continual growth, of, of constant learning and unlearning and relearning, which is a path of discipleship, friends. It is an adventure that you are invited on that you didn't chart for yourself. It's one where the journey reveals itself sometimes only one step at a time. It is therefore surprising. It is therefore terrifying. And it is a journey beyond every one of your skills, every one of your tools, beyond your education, and beyond your minds to plan it. You cannot plan this journey. You are simply called upon it. That is the reason why the fundamental starting point of theology is humility. Humility. Say it. Humility. The human is to be humble. I wonder what word means what there. Which is why Tomas Halik, this great thinker, suggests that a true Christian attitude is not very far away from a true atheist seeker. Because a true atheist seeker is still asking questions, still yearning for more, wanting to understand truth, wanting to be touched by truth, wanting to sense if there is something called the divine is looking and searching and looking and searching. And that is the stance of a true Christian, one who is looking and searching and looking and searching and being open to being touched by the divine, never once having claimed total claim over it or claimed mastery of its knowledge. Friends, this is a song of trust, this psalm, and it's a strange one. But it's radical. It's meant to radicalize your life. Because it's everything. Back to the Lord of the Rings. There is a song, there's several songs in the books. There's a song sung that's repeated several different times, and one that it means something to me because it's a song about the unknown future. There's this ring of power, something that people must throw away, get rid of to have life because it itself corrupts life. It is the metaphor for sin and evil, and it has corrupted everyone who's ever possessed it. But hobbits, little halflings, have to go into the heart of darkness. They have to climb the mountains of a hell and be done with it to overcome. And it is a journey that is almost certainly to end in their death. And it is a journey that's not filled with their bellies of food and delight and air with song. It is a hard journey that they're called to. And Bilbo, who possessed the ring and it made him less of himself, has to hand it off. And he's in Rivendell and he sings this song. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone and I must follow if I can pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. The desire for certainty must wane so that our true act of faith must grow. Where does the path lead? I, like Bilbo, cannot say. But trust in God and he will lead you to it. 